electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 123 of the coronavirus crisis. New information tonight on a key drug to fight the virus as the nation moves closer to reopening. Hey, stocks are under pressure. The best month for stocks since 1987 comes to an end. But questions persist about the rally and our ability to stop the virus. What we found so far is just a little piece of the puzzle. Also tonight. When we take a step forward, we don't want to take two steps back. One business owner's plea to his state. We're not ready to reopen. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Thursday night after the biggest month for stocks in a decade. Let's get to our first look of futures right now. Early, but they are lower following lackluster earnings from some big tech names after the bell. Today, stocks were lower across the board. The Dow losing nearly 300 points. But the real story was the month of April. The Dow gaining 11 percent, S&P 500 almost 13 percent. That was its best performance since 1987. You see the major averages putting in that mark tonight. The Nasdaq adding more than 15 percent, its best month since June of the year 2000. There is also new information tonight in the path towards a vaccine. Drug maker AstraZeneca teaming up with Oxford University. Uh, information on phase one of their testing is due very soon. Our former reporter Meg Terrell following the details for us tonight. Hi, Meg. Hi, Scott. Well, it is one of the most advanced vaccine programs in development for COVID-19 right now. Researchers at the University of Oxford started the first phase of human clinical trials last week in five different centers in southern England. With data expected to be available next month, they say if all goes well, a later stage trial could begin by the middle of this year. A key question for any successful vaccine, though, will be the ability to manufacture it at a large enough scale. That is where a partner like AstraZeneca comes in. Under the agreement with Oxford, the British drug giant will be responsible for development and worldwide manufacturing and distribution if the clinical trials prove that the vaccine works. Now, it's not the only experimental vaccine already in human studies. One from Moderna and the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. began testing in healthy volunteers in March. While small biotech company Innovio has also said it's begun tests. Several vaccines in China have also entered the first phases of human testing, whilst Pfizer and BioNTech began trials in Germany last week, and they're expected to start U.S. trials imminently. A key question for all of these potential vaccines will be whether the course of of the pandemic will enable efficacy to be proven. It often happens in outbreak scenarios that the science is too slow to keep up with the disease. Many times in the past, outbreaks have subsided before a vaccine could be ready to be tested. The development and manufacturing of new drugs and vaccines is also an expensive endeavor. 
And Gilead, whose drug remdesivir yesterday showed positive results in an NIH trial, said it spent $50 million on the drug in the first quarter and may spend up to a billion dollars this year. The company's pledged to donate its available supply of the drug and hasn't com commented on pricing plans after that. CEO Daniel O'Day was asked on a conference call with analysts tonight why COVID-19 is different from other diseases the company does profit from treating, like HIV, hepatitis, and flu. There's been no other time like this in the history of the planet that any of us have been alive in terms of the far-reaching effect of this pandemic, both medically from a patient perspective, most importantly, but also economically. And so I think there is no guidebook out there. There is no rule book out there. And O'Day will join us tomorrow morning to discuss that and more on Squawk Box. Scott? Yeah, Meg, we'll look forward to that very much in the morning on Squawk Box. That's Meg Terrell reporting for us tonight on The Money, as always. Joining us now, CNBC contributor is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former head of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to talk to you again. Give us first your reaction to this Meg story about Oxford and AstraZeneca teaming up. It's good news. We're going to need more than one vaccine developer to be successful here. And the fact that Oxford's teaming up with AstraZeneca, which has the ability to manufacture this product at scale, because the big challenge here isn't just going to be demonstrating that these products are safe and effective and running the clinical trials, but also engaging in a large-scale manufacturing that's going to be required to produce these in quantities sufficient to provide them to an entire population. AstraZeneca has that heft. They have that ability. So this is a positive development. We need more than one vaccine developer to be successful here. We need multiple vaccine developers to be successful across the world if we're going to have enough doses to supply the entire world and also the low- and middle-income countries that are locked out of this race right now. There was a lot of exuberance last evening, plenty of opportunity today for some maybe to walk back some of the expectations of having a vaccine ready as quick as some of the timelines have said through this Operation Warp Speed, for example. Though Dr. Fauci this morning on the Today Show certainly didn't back down. Is it really possible to have a vaccine, Dr. Gottlieb, by January? Well, what we're probably going to have by January is vaccines in sufficient quantities to run very large-scale trials. So if we have outbreaks in American cities, we'll be able to deploy thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of vaccines in those cities and run the kind of large trials that we're going to need to do to prove that these vaccines not just are effective, but that they're safe. In terms of having sufficient quantities to inoculate the entire population, that's really a 2021 event. And hopefully we'll, we'll have it in time for 2021. But it's unlikely to be available before the end of this year. But we could have tens of millions of doses before the end of this year if you, if you see multiple manufacturers being successful. Because each manufacturer could probably produce millions, if not upwards of around 10 million doses. And so you have Merck involved in this. Pfizer, the company that I'm involved with, you have a couple of small biotech companies engaged, Sanofi, um, GSK is engaged. Now you have AstraZeneca. You have J&J &J working on an adenoviral vector vaccine. These are large companies that know how to manufacture at significant scale. Overall, how would you describe your own level of optimism about where we are in our fight against this virus tonight? I'm very optimistic. Um, we're making very rapid progress in trying to drug this, uh, this virus. And there's nothing particularly complex about a coronavirus that would suggest that we're not going to be able to develop an effective therapeutic and a vaccine against it. We haven't had a vaccine against the coronavirus before, but we haven't tried really, except for SARS and MERS. Typically, coronaviruses cause common colds, and we haven't really sought vaccines for them. Um, we already probably have one antiviral drug that's effective, not a home run, but a drug that looks effective in remdesivir. I think we're going to have antibody drugs by the fall at some point this fall. 
that starts to be the makings of a pretty potent toolbox. And those are the first-generation products. And so we'll see second- and third-generation drugs come online. The entire pharmaceutical sector is really focused on this intently. And I think we're making very rapid progress. And so I'm optimistic that we're going to have therapeutics. Never seen anything like it, really. Let's move from therapeutics and vaccines to talk about more reopenings. Georgia now set to lift uh, most shelter-in-place restrictions tomorrow. Is that a good idea? Well, look, I think what's taking shape in this country is that we've reached a plateau in the number of infections at about 30,000 a day. We're bouncing around, but it's at about 30,000 a day. So you have to assume there's about 300,000 infections a day in this country because we're probably diagnosing one in 10 infections to one in 20 infections. Um, And the number of deaths has plateaued as well. I think we're likely to bounce around on that plateau for a sustained period of time. And the risk we face by reopening isn't necessarily that we have a... Uh, rapid surge in infections and run into another epidemic, but we never really snuff out the infections, that we have smoldering infections all through the summer. And if that's the case, if we continue to have 300,000 infections a day, by the time you reach September 1st, upwards of 15% of the U.S. population will have had coronavirus. And so you're starting to get to pretty significant proportion of the population. Um, I think that's the risk we face by some of the reopenings that we're seeing when you still see cases going up. Now, Georgia, the cases are going down in recent days, but they're still not testing a lot. And so you don't know how reliable those that data is. But they haven't seen the kind of sustained declines that we've all said at the outset that you'd want to see um, to try to safely reopen an economy. We've had this conversation about Georgia on numerous occasions. You tweeted a few days ago that they were still having an epidemic there, that cases were on the rise Though I saw today you did uh, say that they've seen a big improvement. It seems like a fairly short period of time to have some level of improvement, no? Well, the improvement was in the IHME model, that model that everyone looks at from Washington State. And that model is just based on trends. And so what they're doing is they're looking at current trends and they're fitting lines to curves. So they're trying to project from what the current trends are. So Georgia has shown in the last week a reduction in the number of new cases on a daily basis. Um, Some of that's probably improvement. Some of it's probably under testing. Georgia ranks in the lower Um, echelon of states in terms of the testing that they're doing in their population. So it's unclear whether or not the epidemic is really subsiding in that state. When you look across the country, you see a lot of states, probably about 25 states, where the epidemic is rising in terms of the number of new cases on a daily basis. So the number of cases being diagnosed on a daily basis is actually going up. Some of that's a, a function of the fact that we're testing a lot more, so we're capturing more cases. But some of it's also a function of you are seeing expanding epidemics in a lot of states. Now, that said, many of these states are states with a very low number of infections. So they're going from 100 infections a day to 110 to 120. So they're not states that had a big epidemic to begin with. But nonetheless, it just shows that we're really not through the woods yet when it comes to this national epidemic. New York's showing a lot of improvement, and that distorts the national figures. But nationally, you still see a lot of states with a lot of spread. What do you think about New Jersey's plan to open golf courses and parks this weekend? Is that a good idea? I think it's sound for the states to try to contemplate what they can do to give people a sense of normalcy again. And the first thing you can do is try to open back up recreational activity done outdoors where we know the risk of spread is lower. I've been advocating and talked to a number of local officials about the idea of trying to move things that are traditionally done indoors outdoors. And so to the extent that we want to restart religious services, holding them outside, we want to restart gym classes, holding those outside, 
Um, even as we contemplate reopening restaurants, lifting local ordinances that make it easier to businesses to try to move some of that business outside, maybe closing blocks and sectioning off more real estate, more public real estate for businesses to try to open up out- venues outside. That's not going to be foolproof, but holding these things outside does reduce risk. And I think it's important that we try to start reintroducing activities that give people a sense of normalcy about their lives. And the first thing to do, really, is to put the nets back up in parks. Let's let's finish by discussing the origin of this virus, uh, if we could. Our intel is is apparently ruling out now that the virus was either man-made or or genetically uh, modified. They're still said, though, to look at whether the virus was accidentally released from that lab in Wuhan. Where are you tonight in your own mind on, on that topic? Well, we might never know. Um, If we can't get access to the source strains or the early index cases, we might never know where this virus came from. We know that lab in Wuhan was doing experiments with coronavirus retrieved from bats. We know that lab was sloppy. Uh, There's been a lot of published articles going back years about that lab calling into question their procedures. And so the possibility that someone might have accidentally infected themselves with a virus and walked it out of that lab by accident certainly will remain. And I don't know that we'll ever be able to fully dispel that. I don't know that it's the leading theory, but it's going to remain a theory. Um, China certainly has some capacity to dispel that. Uh, They don't seem to have taken steps to do that. You would know probably if this was engineered, and it would be a bad bioweapon. I don't think anyone would engineer a a bug like this as a bioweapon, but we would probably be able to tell from the sequence if there were changes made that looked man-made and deliberate. But the possibility that this was an accident, a lab accident, that someone accidentally infected themselves and then went on to propagate the infection, I don't know that we'll ever fully exclude that. Appreciate your time as always, Dr. Gottlieb. You be well. Thanks a lot. All right, Scott Gottlieb is a CNBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA. Let's give you more details now on exactly what Georgia is doing. Georgia's governor today signing an executive order allowing the state's shelter-in-place mandate to expire tonight for most residents and allowing all businesses to reopen tomorrow with certain restrictions. Georgia was one of the first states to reopen some businesses last week, and now more than half of the United States will be reopened in some form by the end of this week. Well, some businesses in Texas will reopen tomorrow as well, but some owners say it's just too soon. Adam Orman is the owner of Locadoro, a restaurant in Austin, Texas. He met with the city's mayor earlier today as one of the leaders of a coalition to discuss the challenges of reopening. Adam, it's good to talk to you tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Scott. When are you prepared to reopen, do you think? Uh, Well, we're definitely going to give it a couple of weeks to see what this 25 percent capacity rule uh does uh in restaurants and in the state um i think a lot of people are looking at may 18th which is when the governor announced he would be moving into phase two and restaurants would be open at 50 percent capacity it's likely that even at that point we'll start at 25 and slowly ramp up just to make sure that we're following all the protocols and all the guidelines that we're trying to develop now heard some of the conversations center around if you can only have 25 percent capacity as a restaurateur is it even worth opening for all that you'll have to deal with how do you address that uh our restaurant would not make a whole lot of sense at 25 percent a lot of restaurants where you are um buying perishable products where you're cooking things to order um where there's any where there's that are service-based models um are not going to make sense at 25 percent you 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 have to have too much labor 
Um, and there's too much food cost and there's too much risk of things going bad. Um, so no, it's, it's not worth it financially. It's not really worth it financially at 50% either. There are some businesses where it does make sense. I think places that are, um, you know, that are doing a lot more reheating that are cooking, that are, that are, that are using a lot of frozen food. So they're not, um, they're not as concerned about things being perishable that are doing things from a salad bar setup or from a counter service setup. Um, there are some places where 25% makes more sense. Um, I think those tend to be places that are, you know, concepts that can be, that are more franchised, that are more chainable and that, that have, um, a better capacity. You've dealt with a, a, you know, a, a number of things down there. Obviously you've got a university that's closed that's probably a considerable amount of business you get. South by Southwest was canceled. Can you just give us an idea of how your business has coped since all of this happened? What's happened to your employees and, and how you've dealt with it if you applied for assistance from the government? Sure. Uh, we closed for we closed. We went down to takeout the day before the mayor, uh, the mayor's order to go to takeout. And then we did that for nine days. Um, and it was just we weren't it didn't feel safe. Um, it felt like we were making too many decisions on our own. There had been no guidelines, um, about what to do with landlords, what to do with utilities, what to do with taxes. There were no, there were very few health and sanitation guidelines at that point. Everybody was, we were still in the period of, um, you know, uh, don't touch your face, um, and, and, uh, uh, wash your hands. So we stopped, um, to try and gather some more information and, figure out a, a better way to run the business that would decrease contact. We have a, um, we use a direct primary care provider for our, for all of our employees. And we consulted with our doctor, um, to talk about what he thought made sense. So we opened up again three weeks later in a different takeout model. We had laid everybody off. Um, and I'm in constant contact with my employees trying to make sure that they're getting their unemployment insurance, which is just about a full-time job. Um, and, uh, and we did apply for assistance. Um, we have a PPP loan, um, but that is definitely not a cure all. Um, and I'm happy to talk about some of the issues with the PPP loans. Well, we've as, been, as, we've, we've certainly been following it uh, from the very beginning. We know the challenges that, um, restaurant owners and operators like you have faced. Let me just ask you quickly before I go, will you pay a rent tomorrow, May 1st? Um, we are trying to, uh, we have our PPP loans and we're, we're trying to make sure that we keep up with, uh, with our expenses. We, we, if we open, when we do reopen, we want to be in as, we want to be in as little a hole as possible. We understand. We feel your pain. We do. We've spoken with a number of restaurateurs. We know what you're going through. We wish you well. We'll, we'll check in with you again soon. All righty. Thank you, Scott. All right, Adam, you take care. That's Adam Orman, Locadoro down in Austin, Texas. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is just getting started. Next tonight, a company that advises stadiums like Madison Square Garden and Yankee Stadium on what they have to do to make sure the fans are safe when this is all over. Plus, this is probably one of the biggest tests. A comedy club owner with nothing to laugh about. In their own words, next. Before the break, images from around the United States on the 123rd day of the coronavirus crisis.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Good to have you back with us. Husband and wife entrepreneurs Vicky and Vinnie Brand run restaurant comedy clubs in New Jersey and Connecticut. They shut their doors seven weeks ago, laying off 60 employees, including Vicky's own mother. The couple now shares their story tonight in their own words. This is probably one of the biggest tests that we have ever been under, both professionally and personally. We've always uh, been very uh, intent in our belief that if we work hard, we can get through almost anything. And this is going to be one of the bigger tests. In order to weather the storm, we had to lay them off so we could survive. Having to lay off your 71-year-old mother is a difficult and heartbreaking task to undertake. A lot of our employees live week to week. So to come to them with no notice and say, we have to shutter our doors you know, for the greater good, while everyone understands it, it's really a, a painful and emotional message to bring to everybody. We're very, very confident we'll weather this storm, and we'll be back. We're back stronger than ever. The brands tell us they applied for the first round of SBA loan money with no luck. They are holding out hope, though. A lifeline might come in this round, too. Well, here are the headlines on the virus on day 123 of this crisis. Macy's planning to open some of its stores on Monday, expecting all 775 will be opened in six weeks. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the U.K. has passed the peak of its outbreak. And starting Monday, United Airlines will require all employees and passengers to wear masks or face coverings on board all of its planes. And the Navy hospital ship, the Comfort, leaving New York City earlier today, exactly one month after arriving. The ship, which treated 182 COVID patients during its stay, heading back now to its base in Virginia. April, usually one of the busiest months for pro sports. Baseball begins as the NHL and NBA get closer to playoff time. This year, of course, everything is different. Tonight, we're learning about what sports will look like as the pandemic eases. Dr. Andrew Bezos is the founder and managing director of CrowdRx, which provides medical services and advice at live events. Uh, Mr. Bezos, good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Scott. You know, what seemed like such a normal exercise just a short time ago now seems impossible. How are we going to deal with the path forward, the other side of this crisis, as it relates to attending sporting events? Well, um, we're going to try to apply some science and apply some reason and help uh, ultimately help uh, the business people and stadium operators make the right decision uh, with uh, in informed consent from all the medical uh, expertise that we have to offer. Uh, CrowderX is an event medical company, and right now there are no events going on. So we have pivoted to a position of trying to get our venues and stadiums and uh, workforces back safely to what we do uh, in the normal times. Um, fortunately, our parent company, Global Medical Response, which is 38,000 first responders across the country, 
uh, is there on the front line helping us every day. And until we get the front line situation uh, restored, we can't move forward with fun events. I know we're talking about getting back to sports and entertainment, but there's nothing fun about what our, um, our staff is doing on the front lines right now, no matter what side of the curve we're on. So uh, before we go into uh, uh, the event side of this, I just want to uh, send my thanks out to all our fellow employees that are doing that uh, first step for us. We, we do as well. Uh, do, do you anticipate um, crowds being able to go into arenas or even a willingness to go until there's a vaccine to treat this virus? Well, I think there's different levels. First, we have to get uh, government uh, approvals and uh, go with our uh, federal and state and local leaders and their restrictions and their return uh, to uh, Game On. CrowderX Game On uh, plan, uh, first and foremost, depends upon uh, these phases that the government will outlay. But we're trying to get ahead of them with protocols that once it happens, we will meet standards set by the state and municipalities, but also have higher standards internally, because uh, I think you hit it on the head. We need to make spectators comfortable coming to events. Even if you're allowed to go, we want people to feel comfortable. Um, as such, we've formed this comprehensive platform to do everything we can to mitigate the risks of being in a crowd. What, what is the, what's the experience going to feel like and look like, do you think? I think there will be um, more rigorous screening techniques. Right now, everybody's familiar with magnetometers. They're familiar with uh, drug-sniffing dogs. I think there is definitely going to be another component uh, to that. Right now, we're doing a lot of thermal screening, looking for fevers in, uh, in the workforce. People return to work. Uh, large companies are doing a lot of work for large companies that want to get a safe workforce in. So I think we'll see a component of thermal screening. I think we'll see a component of checking other parameters. For example, oxygen saturation has been this, uh, used as a hallmark for underlying disease. That may be there. But I'm hopeful that we will have some rapid screening techniques available to us. Uh, and I know it's been talked about testing, testing, testing. I do think that is going to happen in a big part of clearing the way for safe spectator sports to resume. Looking at your clients, Madison Square Garden, the Yankees, the U.S. Open, this may sound like a trivial question, but could you imagine, uh, could you have concessions in, a, in an arena? Would you um, recommend that? Is, that? is that something that could, could happen? Well, um, we're first and foremost a medical company, so we will be using medical reasoning. Um, ironically, I, I'm a trained, uh, my major in college was molecular biology. I never thought I'd use it again, but we're going to support business decisions with science and medicine, and we're not going to be making those decisions about whether you can have a beer, take a mask off. Um, we're going to lay out the risks and the benefits of all of those activities in concert with what governments and municipalities are recommending. I, as a sports and entertainment aficionado, am hopeful that we will get back to all of that and get all back to all of it quickly. But there will be some risks and there will be some blips on the screen as we do that. Yep. We will see how it all uh, shakes out. Uh, Dr. Bezos, we so much appreciate your time uh, and the work and that of your employees. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you Thanks soon. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's uh, Dr. Uh, Andrew Bezos joining us tonight. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. We don't expect to be back to normal until at least September 1st. We think it is safe to go back to work. There are going to be changes to uh, how we run a restaurant. America's corporate leaders. 
CEOs from major companies on what they think is next for this country's economic path forward. Plus, a top leader of one of the biggest public school systems in the world on where they stand and whether summer school for all is a possibility. And I was living in complete fear. One woman's story of how the virus is forcing her to pick up and leave her dreams behind. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. It's safe to say that there are going to be changes. Tonight, top CEOs on the path forward. Plus, everybody remembers going to the school cafeteria. What happens when you change the class? Everyone's also marching up and down the hallways. This is a problem. Are schools ready to open their doors? And friends were seeing body bags from their windows. You're just in the survival mode. One woman's flight from the virus and a path forward to a very different life. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. Stock futures sharply lower this hour following some tepid earnings results from the likes of Apple and Amazon after the bell comes after a down day for stocks. The last one of April. It was, though, the best monthly gain in 33 years for the Dow and the S&P since 2000 for the Nasdaq. Those strong April gains clawing back a lot of the big losses through March. The averages are all more than 30 percent off of their March 23rd lows at this point. Another big day for many of the country's biggest chief executives on this very network. Here's what they're saying now about the state of the American economy and our path forward. We're considering a a phase in at the right time. Again, we got to harmonize federal, state and local kind of responses and what our actual experience is to the coronavirus. But we have a phased in approach and uh, I, I look forward to the day things get back to normal. We're working safely. We're sharing those best practices with governments around the world. We think it is safe to go back to work and, and we're going to start to demonstrate that. I think it's safe to say that there are going to be changes to uh, how we run a restaurant uh, coming out of this to make sure uh, that we're able to provide a safe environment. Having a purposeful program where people will you know, stay with our brands as things get back to normal. Now, when they get back to normal and how quickly that happens, uh, obviously it's going to be staged. Nobody really knows, but we can expect that people will be eating more meals at home 
uh, for quite some period of time. We don't expect to be back to normal until at least September 1st. So we're not going to expect or require employees to come to the office. The governor of Texas is starting to slowly reopen the uh, Texas economy and we'll slowly start phasing in people back into the office, but encouraging them to continue to work from home. Duncan's been a business uh, that's been, again, low touch, high frequency, uh, uh, affordable ticket. And we think whatever the reality is going to be, that model plays well. Uh, with that, uh, what the consumer is going to be looking for, in addition to those safety measures, which we view, view as really investments in the future. Meantime, California Governor Newsom saying the state is considering a late July or early August restart date for students who have been practicing distance learning since mid-March due to the virus. With us tonight, Stephanie Gregson. She is California Department of Education Chief Deputy Superintendent. Uh, Dr. Gregson, it's good to have you tonight. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So July or August restart, that would be earlier than a September restart? Well, a lot of our schools in California actually do start in August, some in the beginning, some in the middle, and some in the end. Interesting. How has distance learning been going? You know, distance learning for 6.2 million students across a very large state is always a complex uh, approach to take. And so one of the main issues we've been working through is our digital divide, ensuring that all of our students have access to devices and broadband. Our state superintendent, Tony Thurman, created an ad hoc committee on closing the digital divide. It's a task force that is really working with internet service providers, our legislative members, to work through how to decrease the barriers for our students to have access to devices and broadband. Uh, you know, we know that broadband access needs to flow like electricity for all of our students to engage in a distance learning approach. Such a challenge. Are there some children within your district who, who don't have uh, iPads, laptops, desktops, things they need to to communicate? Yes, we have over 300,000 students without devices and over 290,000 students without access to broadband across the state. And that is why we are working so diligently to get devices into their hands and to really send that message to internet service providers to work with our low-income families to decrease the barriers for the access. I'm trying to wonder how you have such a, a monumental task as you look towards the new school year of even thinking about how you'll send your kids to school, how we'll all send our kids back to school through transportation, how teachers will be thinking about that, what classrooms will look like. How are you tackling all of that? So first and foremost, we're working with our partners. We're working with the governor's office, the California State Board of Education, all of our education partners, and really looking at what are the questions that we need to answer in order to be able to open schools safely, because that is first and foremost for us, is to open schools in a safe manner where students, families, and teachers feel comfortable walking onto campus and being able to learn. What's the average class size in the, in the state? Do you know that number offhand? Uh, it ranges from elementary grades to having 20 students to high school classes that may have 40 students. It really is a range. Are you thinking at this point about how you'd be able to distance students from one another with inside a classroom? Well, I think we all uh, know that kindergartners and first graders will have a really hard time staying six feet away from each other. So we really have to think through what that would look like um, in order for them to be safe at school and for their, their teachers as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the teachers. How are they coping with all of this and how do they feel about a return to school? What would you do to, to uh, ensure their safety? 
You know, our teachers are amazing. They pivoted on a dime to be able to provide connections and opportunities for their students to continue learning. And they miss their students. You know, as a former teacher, that's that student-teacher connection was always first and foremost in my mind, and it is for our teachers across the state. So they are anxious to see their students again, but also want to ensure that everyone's safe. Um, that includes themselves and the students. We wish you well. Big task ahead of you. Dr. Stephanie Gregson, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you so much. All right. There's more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Next tonight, what one emergency room doctor, not far from a Midwestern meatpacking plant, is seeing. We'll take you out of America's big cities to show you what's happening next. Plus, you're just in the survival mode, and I just was terrified. A woman, one of many, who's making a permanent lifestyle change because of the virus. Before the break, images from around the world on day 123 of this global pandemic. Welcome back. Health officials in Nebraska traced more than 230 coronavirus cases to a meatpacking facility in Grand Island, Nebraska. That's where we find Dr. Nikhil Jagan. He is a critical care specialist at St. Francis Hospital. Dr. Jagan, appreciate you being with us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. We mentioned you're near this meatpacking plant. What have you seen? Have you seen patients who've gotten sick at that plant? Uh, I'm not going to go into specifics, uh, you know, wide variety of rules, but yeah, we've been seeing folks from uh, all walks of life uh, who work at different places and of all age groups. So let me ask you this. Based on what you've seen, I mean, the president has described uh, the industry as being thrilled and even gung ho at his order that they must stay open. Do you think that the plant near you should stay open if that many people are getting sick? Uh, well, uh Obviously, I'm I'm not not an expert when it comes to to what stays open and what stays closed. But at least from what I've been seeing, like ill patients in the ICU, when when they do get sick, they get they get really really sick, and that's kind of what we've been seeing over the last four to five weeks. Uh, but at least over the last few days, uh, kind of light at the end of the tunnel, where we've seen things slow down a little bit. Uh, more folks get better, more folks get off ventilators. So uh, cautiously optimistic, I would say. Yeah. I mean, just describe for me the, the scene of we, we talk so much here. We're, we're in the New York area. We talk a lot about New York and New Jersey, Connecticut, the East Coast. And we talk about the West Coast for, for obvious reasons, too, given the size of, of the economy and, and the states uh, of there. Give me a real world view, though, of what it's like on the front lines in a state like Nebraska, what a hospital looks like right now. Uh, so it is, it's a very dynamic process. It, it changed pretty much on within a few days and it's on a day-to-day basis. 
Uh, and uh, we were well prepared. We, we had all the planning in place that if this did happen, what we would do. And we went from maybe one to two people on ventilators to pretty much filling up the ICU within a few days uh, up to, to 14 to 16 uh, patients on ventilators. Uh, people get very sick and it's very quick. Everybody has very low oxygen levels and uh, and it kind of happens very rapidly. So we, we adapted quickly. It was a lot of learning uh, and, uh, and it was kind of quick and it happened over and it's been, it was ongoing over the last few weeks. So, uh, In terms of ages of the patients you're seeing, are, are, can you tell us a little bit about that? Are you seeing a lot of younger patients? Uh, How does it look? It, it is very surprising. We've seen all age groups. Uh, I've seen folks in their 20s to folks in their 60s and 70s, which uh, kind of initially where uh, we were seeing a little more of the older folks uh, who have a lot of comorbidities, but... Uh, in the last few weeks, we've been seeing people who are younger as well get equally sick. Yeah, it's scary, no doubt. Let me ask you lastly, a lot of uh, optimism in the last 24 hours and maybe a, cu- a couple weeks on Gilead's uh, remdesivir, a, a possible therapeutic to treat coronavirus. Uh, what do you think about it and would you prescribe it yourself based on what you know now? Uh, looking at the prelim data and what's been coming out has been encouraging so definitely, as with any study, you've got to go into the details associated with it, uh, the pros and cons. And I think it's got to be tailored to every patient because every patient's different. So we've got to look at the risks and benefits. So uh, I'm still waiting on more data to come out. And uh, I think tailoring it is very, very important. Yeah. We appreciate your time uh, so much, Dr. Jagan. We wish you well, uh, your colleagues as well. Grateful for all that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. You take care. Well, she came to New York with a dream, but the virus has forced her to make a big change. One woman's path forward is coming up next. States Air Force Band performing. I'll be seeing you with allies across the world, including Japan, Brazil, and Australia on this International Jazz Day. Song popularized during World War II and was chosen to send a message of, quote, conviction and hope across the world. Well, tonight, one woman's path forward is due west. After trying to make it in New York, the virus is now forcing her out. Diana Olick has her story tonight. Lindsay Marvel moved to New York City because, in her words, you go big or go home. Now she's going home to Tulsa, Oklahoma. She had turned down a program last year called Tulsa Remote that pays professionals to relocate there. Last week, she changed her mind. I first heard about Tulsa Remote um, last summer, and I decided to apply in the fall and then was a finalist and accepted and just kind of got cold feet. You know, New York obviously has so much to offer. Um, and so I, I decided not to do it. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened, um, Brooklyn, and it became a really scary place to be. I found that, you know, my rent was still the same. And, you know, what, what am I paying for? Everything is closed. And so I reached out again and said, you know, hey, would, would you all... Um, 
you know, still give me a chance to, to, to make this move? Um, and they said, yes, packed up a pod um, that I actually still need to schedule to get sent to Tulsa. And, and I, I bought a car. I mean, I was living in complete here. And I'm realizing that even more so now that I'm away was I was driving away from the city. I just felt this like overwhelming relief. I mean, I was just so tense and scared. I mean, my neighbor died who was always, you know, telling my dog hi. I mean, friends were seeing body bags from their windows, you know, and you're just in this survival mode. And I just, I just was terrified. Um, you know, things in New York are, are not easy. And that's some of the, the charm, you know, even mailing a letter, you have to kind of, it's, it's not so easy. And so um, with this, it just, things just became way too difficult and just absolutely just terrifying. How do you justify paying that rent when, like I said, everything's closed or you're afraid to even go to the grocery store? Um, so a lot of people are going, you know, if they have access to like a vacation home or, um, and just family members or, or whatever, you know, trying to get get out and leave. Now, Tulsa Remote says applications for the program have doubled in just the last month. Diana Olick, CNBC. On day 123 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Nearly four million more Americans filing for unemployment last week, making it more than 30 million in the past six weeks. Gilead says it can produce several million rounds of its possible treatment remdesivir next year. And the Dow and the S&P 500 posting their best monthly gains since 1987. We'll take a look at how May may get underway. We'd give some back if it opened right now. From all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay well and be safe. The Air Force Band is going to play us out tonight. And then Shark Tank is next. podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.